It was the fall of 2010, and by then I'd been serving for a number of years as the associate minister at the First Unitarian Church of Rochester, New York. During the time I'd been serving there, I had fallen in love with the congregation, absolutely. I loved its can-do attitude, its spirit of, sure, we'll try that. I loved its history of social justice work that stretched all the way back to Susan B. Anthony, and I loved the music there. The building had this pipe organ and this story that went with it, where members of the choir had heard that a church down the street was closing and they were just going to destroy the organ. So the members from First Unitarian Rochester went over, took the pipe organ apart, labeled every piece, brought it back, and put it together in the sanctuary. This was a group of talented, dedicated folks who figured they could do just about anything. There was one couple in particular in the choir that stood out. He was a tall, gentle man, a professor at the local university who played classical guitar. She was a petite spitfire of a person, active in environmental preservation, a photographer and a writer with a gorgeous soprano voice. They sang together often, transporting all of us with the beauty that they created. Tim and Christine had met one another in the choir and they were married there in the church and their presence marked the congregation and my ministry there. When I was ordained several years before, I asked for a very particular song to be sung at the service. Tim and Christine learned it without hesitation and sang it beautifully. They had a dog named Riley who they treated and believed was their child. They loved Riley so much. Riley traveled with them just about everywhere and they offered to bring her to our house to show off her tricks at our son's birthday party and to take some pictures of our family. They were deeply embedded in the local arts and music and environmental scene, and their friendships inside and outside of the church ran deep. Married for nearly 20 years, they still held hands in public and looked at one another with this deep sense of adoration. And then, and then, on the morning of November 30th, 2010, Tim strangled Christine in their suburban home. He put her in the trunk of the car that they shared and they drove around all day and into the night. He eventually settled on a hiking trail they had frequented as a final resting place. Once arriving at the trail well after dark, Tim attempted to kill their beloved dog. He was drunk by then. He'd been driving around drinking and visiting all the important places in their relationship. And by the time he got to this spot at this time in the night, his car was stuck in the mud on the trail. He thought the dog was dead, and there he was, stranded. He called 911 and confessed, and he's now serving out his sentence in prison for second-degree murder. I'm sure you can imagine that when news came to the congregation about Christine's murder, everyone was in shock, complete shock. The, these people, they were the golden couple, they were handsome and beautiful in the most traditional of ways. They were artistic and talented and beloved by many. What in the world had happened? A family member of theirs described the whole situation really well. This murder, she said, it was never a whodunit story. It was more of a why done it. Why had he made this choice? What had happened? We spent weeks and months and years, and still many of us who knew both of them are trying to square the experience we had of him and the choices that he made. 
Shock and anger and horror, sadness and grief for him and for her flooded our hearts. It was sitting in the chapel at the university for Christine's memorial service when we overheard a church member whispering to another church member, saying, it's too bad Tim can't be here. He loved her so much. This truth, this both and, this disconnect between the violence that had occurred and the rest of the lives that we knew, it was beyond unsettling, and it caught many of us off guard again and again. None of us saw Christine's murder coming, and as more facts came out about their relationship and the situation, it didn't seem that Christine would have seen it coming either. There was no history of violence that could be discovered. Instead, the story that revealed itself was one that perhaps could have happened to any of us. Tim had been falling behind at work for years. His position at the university was threatened. He had secretly been accumulating debt to keep up their lifestyle. And after years of scrambling to try and conceal what was really happening, the curtains were about to be opened and the truth was about to be known. He says he just couldn't bear the idea of his wife finding out about this. And so he planned to end it for all of them, their whole family killing first her, then their dog, then himself. Somehow the idea of murder and death had become easier to swallow than being found out, than being revealed for the imperfect or the perfectly imperfect human being that he was. It was about two weeks after the murder that I found myself standing in the pulpit at the First Unitarian Church of Rochester, charged with the task of talking about evil. We were all confused and hurting, angry and sad. The questions that were in front of us that week were much like the ones that are in front of us this week. Why would somebody do such a thing? What in the world could possess a person to kill someone who had done nothing to them? And maybe hardest of all, how had we missed it? How was it that someone could be thinking about or planning such a terrible act right next to us and we didn't have a clue? How could evil have come to rest in our very own community, right next to us. Now talking about evil is not ever an easy task to take up. It can be harder still when there are emotions swirling within us, but we must take it up all the same. We Unitarian Universalists and folks involved in liberal religion have a notoriously weak theology of evil. We tend to like to dwell in the happier places, in the place of optimism as much as possible. We hold tight to the part of universalism that says we are whole and holy and worthy, that no one is held outside the circle, and that is good and easy until someone does something that makes us want to put them outside of the circle, maybe something unkind or scary or downright evil. We hold tight to the part of Unitarianism that has always claimed that given the right social conditions, all minds and all hearts will grow toward the good, onward and upward forever and ever. And that works okay until the truth about the perpetuation of social conditions that oppress and degrade others is revealed, until we see people who have had every opportunity and a circle of love surrounding them choose bad over good. We tend as Unitarian Universalists to push away the creation story that lives at the heart of Christianity, 
this creation story that roots us in original sin, that says we are inherently fallen and sinful creatures tempted by the forces of evil, separated from heaven and from God by our desires and our actions, redeemable not through any choices we might make or actions we might take, but only by the physical sacrifice of another. Now, there are plenty of good reasons to push away that story, but when we push it away entirely, for many folks in liberal religion, we push away the idea of sin and evil altogether too. But here we are, living in this world, and if we can see or hear and know what is going on around us when we witness the events of this last week, from the actions of our elected officials to the actions of single individuals, we cannot with integrity dismiss the existence of evil as a force that lives and breathes in this world, tempting and luring us toward great harm. Evil, as it's defined by Paul Razor, the Unitarian Universalist minister and theologian, evil is an impersonal spiritual force that separates us from the good that we seek. Evil is an impersonal spiritual force that separates us from the good that we seek. One excellent example of evil, Razor says, is racism. Racism is a cultural construct. It's a made-up system based on the made-up categories of race. It's put in place to take resources and power away from people of color and indigenous people and give them to white people. This evil has been built into the white supremacy culture that dominates America. It's been built into our structures and our institutions. It has become an impersonal force that separates us from the good that we seek. Racism has come to have a power of its own, I understand Razor to be saying. It has a life of its own that can't be defeated by programs and policies alone because it has become a force that perpetuates itself. It shifts shape, it finds new ways to take root in our hearts and our societal structures and institutions. So racism, like any evil, Razor says, it must be pushed back against not only with education and policies and programs, but also with spiritual force. Spiritual force. How do we do that? How do we push back with spiritual force against racism, against evil? What can we do to prepare and sustain ourselves for the long haul commitment to social change, to self-examination, to resistance and recreation that the rooting out of racism and evil requires. Community, Razor asserts. Community is essential to our resistance. Racism has created a fragmented society. It's created fragmented selves, a fragmented way of being in the world. And evil, I would say, whether it comes in the form of racism or as physical violence or as living with the experience of being told that you are treated as less than year after year, evil in all of its forms creates fragmented selves and a fragmented society. It is in community that our fragmented, fractured selves can be healed. It is in community that our healing selves can then heal this fractured and fragmented world. Over the years, I've had the privilege of journeying with a number of people through addiction and recovery, and many of them have used the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as a template, as a way to make their way. 
They've admitted and come to accept the truth about their addiction. They've leaned in to a group of people who have recovered and can show the way. And they've come to their own understanding of a higher power, whatever shape that takes, whether it's the shape of a traditional God or a still small voice within, or maybe the group that they rely on itself. And after they've done these things, then they come face to face with steps four and five in their recovery program. Step four says, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, followed quickly by step five, which says, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, there are all kinds of ways to do steps four and five, but one of the most commonly accepted ways to do these steps is to work with a sponsor who can guide you through the process, who can share their experience, and who can encourage you when you get scared. And most people get scared when it comes to steps four and five. I mean, really, who wants to write it all down on paper? Everything you've ever done wrong in your life, all of the transgressions you've had, write it down on paper. To put down all the ways that you've been selfish and self-centered, all the ways that your fear of financial insecurity, your desire for sex or for intimacy, your desire to look good, to write down all of those things and the ways that they have warped your behavior so that you fall short of your values. Who wants to do this? List your resentments, the people and institutions that you're angry at, and then look at your part in it, not theirs. For most people in recovery in 12-step programs, step four means taking a close look at some very hard truths. And step five means becoming willing to share those truths, not only with yourself and with your understanding of a higher power, but with another person as well. As I've watched people take these steps time and time again, I have come to really appreciate the ancient spiritual practice of self-reflection, of self-examination and confession, of forgiveness of self and others, and beginning again in love. One friend told me his story in particular of meeting with his sponsor to share his fifth step. He said when he sat down, he was so nervous that he could hardly breathe. And his sponsor said some reassuring words that felt like platitudes that just kind of went over his head. And then his sponsor said, I'm going to tell you the worst thing that I have ever done. And I'm going to tell you this so that you know that I won't judge you, so that you know that we are the same, so that you know that whatever you have to say to me, you can say it, and it'll be okay. And the sponsor went on, and he shared the most awful thing he had ever done, and it was awful, terrible. And my friend says he had a really hard time reconciling what his sponsor had just said to him about something he had done in his past and the person who was sitting in front of him. It was hard to put those together. And yet he trusted his sponsor, and he knew that it was true. And he started talking and sharing and saying what was on his heart and eventually even saying the things that he hadn't written on his list, the things he had had no intention to share with anybody. When my friend described this experience to me, he said it was as if for the first time in his life he felt like he was a part of the human race. All of the ways that he had used over the years to outside himself, to other himself, to say, well, you like me just fine, but not if you really know everything. All of those ways he had of being with himself began to slip away. He began to believe that if this person in front of him could hold those harms that he'd done as well as the good he was now doing, 
maybe that was possible for him too. He started to have that experience that I hope for, for all of us, of I'm that, and I'm that, and I'm that too. Capable of great harm, capable of great good, both. This experience of I'm that, and I'm that, and I'm that too. It's true for us not only as individuals, it's true for our country as well. We are founded in a search for religious freedom, and we are founded in genocide. We live in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and the wealth of this country is based on stolen land and built on the backs of slaves. It is true that over the last 20 years, we have seen a rise in mass shootings, and it is true that violence has always been a part of who we are and what happens in our country. As a friend of mine said recently, this past week's shooting in Las Vegas is the deadliest shooting in our history, only if you don't count black and brown and indigenous people. Our country can be a place of freedom and opportunity, and it can be a place of oppression and violence and a denial of reality. This and this and this, they're all true at once. So the question for us comes down to which direction are we going to lean in? Are we going to lean into consciousness, into awareness and acceptance of all of who we are, the good and the bad, the racist and the anti-racist, the deep knowledge that I'm that and that and that too? Or will we try to compartmentalize the pieces of who we are, denying the wholeness of our existence and in doing so, handing over whatever power we could have had to push back against the forces of evil? We might not be able to eliminate evil altogether. We might not be able to put an end to racism in our lifetime, but we can, as theologian Sharon Welch says, we can prevent our own capitulation to the structures of evil. And we do this by participating in extensive community. Extensive community is a kind of community that's comprised of both sameness and difference, a community where we can tell the truth about who we are and what we've done and what we are doing, where we can trust that the circle of love will not push us outside, no matter what. This is the kind of community we can find here in our church, here where we state with clarity in our goals, that these goals that guide us, we say our sense of who we are is ever expanding. We are this and this and this too, here in this church. This is the kind of community where we can remind each other that we are more than our worst mistake, where we can cheer each other on through our changes and our challenges to the structures of evil. It is this kind of community that can help us to see that we are the sea pirate and the girl, the frog and the grass snake. This kind of community that can help us to open the door of compassion in our hearts and call us by our true names. This is a lot to take in. It's a lot of different ideas, a lot of theology, a lot of concepts and stories. So I want to break it down and leave us with a very particular spiritual practice, something I suggest that you try out, some way to combat evil and the forces of evil in your own heart and in your own life. Now, if you're part of our Soul Matters small group program, you'll see this spiritual practice as one of the possibilities in the month of October as we lean into and explore this theme of outsiders. But I think it's worth bringing up for all of us to try. The spiritual practice is called Lens of Compassion. So the practice that's suggested is that you pick a time of day 
some part of your regular routine. Maybe it's when you first wake up, maybe you're brushing your teeth, you're watching the news, you're commuting to and from work, you're at pickups after school, you're at the gym, you're talking to a friend on the phone, whatever it is, try and pick something that you do on a daily basis. Maybe even pick a time of day when you're typically kind of cranky or frustrated, maybe tired or feeling competitive. And during this time, I invite you to pick a phrase or a question to hold in your mind and to repeat or to ask over and over. Maybe the phrase or the question could be one of these. What burdens are you carrying? I wonder what this is like for you. You too are a child of God. I see the holy in you. I honor you. We all have tender hearts. Whatever the phrase is, let it sink in. Let it soften your heart. To see the both and, the complexity of who we are as a people and as a country, the complexity of who we are as individuals, of who you and I are. This truth that we are that and that and that too. It is my hope that we might do the spiritual work that is required, that we might grow in compassion, that we might push back against the evil with all the spiritual force that it requires that exists in our world, calling ourselves and each other by our true names, leaving the door of our heart open to compassion, that we might do our part to create a world of justice and love. May we be fearless and brave in this work. May it be so, and amen.